0: It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode, Chapter 6 of The Flying Saucers Are Real by Donald Kehoe. Okay, before we get started, everybody, I'd just like to apologize for not having our regularly scheduled show. Instead, I'm reading a chapter of this book. I think it's an interesting book, but normally I would prefer to do a topic with, you know, with the whole group. But sometimes, you know, people are sick, stuff happens, and we're not able to record, and on those occasions I find something else to do, such as reading a chapter of this book, if possible, so that I have at least something that I can put out there for everybody to listen to. And this week, uh, once again, we were all sick, just like the previous week, and unable to record. So now we get a chapter of this wonderful book. I uh, hope you guys all enjoy it. All right, here we go. Chapter six. Shortly after my talk with Steele, I flew to the coast. For three weeks I investigated sightings that had been reported by airline and private pilots and other competent witnesses. At first, the airline pilots were reluctant to talk. Most of them remembered the ridicule that had followed published accounts by other airline men. One pilot told me he had been ordered to keep still about his experience. Whether by the company or the Air Force, he would not say but most of them finally agreed to talk if I kept their names out of print. One airline captain, I'll call him Blake, had encountered a saucer at night. He and his co-pilot had sighted the object gleaming in the moonlight, half a mile to their left. We were about 12,000 feet, he said, when we saw this thing pacing us. It didn't have any running lights, but we could see the moonlight reflecting from something like bright metal. There was a glow along the side, like some kind of light or exhaust. "'Could you make out the shape?' I asked. Blake grinned crookedly. "'You think we didn't try?' I cut in toward it. It turned in the same direction. I pulled up about three hundred feet, and it did the same. Finally, I opened my throttles and cut in fast." "'intending to pull up if we got too close. "'I needn't have worried. "'The thing let out a burst of reddish flame "'and streaked up out of sight. "'It was gone in a few seconds. "'Then it must have been piloted,' I said. "'If not, it had some kind of radar responder unit "'to make it veer off when anything got near it. "'It matched every move I made until the last one.' I asked him what he thought the saucer was. Blake hesitated, then gave me a slow grin. Well, my co-pilot thinks it was a spaceship. He says no pilot here on Earth could take that many Gs when the thing zoomed. I've heard some men from Mars opinions about the saucers, but this was an experienced pilot. You don't believe that, I said. No, Blake said. I figure it was some new type of guided missile. If it took as many Gs as Chuck, my co-pilot thinks, then it must have been on a beam and remote controlled. Later I found two other pilots who had the same idea as Chuck. One captain was afraid the flying saucers were Russian. His co-pilot thought they were Air Force or Navy. I met one airline official who was indignant about testing such missiles near the airways. Even if they do have some device to make them veer off, he said, I think it's a risk. There'll be hell to pay if one ever hits an airliner. They must have been flying around for two years, a line pilot pointed out. Nobody's had a close call yet. I don't think there's much danger. When I left the coast, I flew to New York. Ken Purdy called in John Dubarry, True's aviation editor, to hear the details. Purdy called him John the Skeptic. After I told them what I had learned, Purdy nodded. What do you think the saucers are? asked Dubarry. They must be guided missiles, I said, but it leaves some queer gaps in the picture. I had made up a list of possible answers and I read it to them. 1. The saucers don't exist, they're caused by mistakes, hysteria, and so on. 2. They're Russian-guided missiles. Three, they're American-guided missiles. Four, the whole thing is a hoax, a psychological warfare trick. You mean a trick of ours, said Purdy? Sure, to make the Soviets think we could reach them with a guided missile. But I don't think that's the answer. I just listed it as a possibility. DuBerry considered this thoughtfully. In the first place, you'd have to bring thousands of people into the scheme, so the disks would be reported often enough to get publicity. You'd have to have some kind of device, maybe something launched from high-flying bombers, to give the rumors substance. They'd certainly do a better job than this to put it over, and it wouldn't explain the worldwide sightings. Also, Captain Mantell wouldn't kill himself just to carry out an official hoax. John's right, said Purdy. Anyway, it's too ponderous. It would leak like a sieve, and the dumbest Soviet agent would see through it. He looked back at my list. Cross-off number one. There's too much competent testimony beside the obvious fact that something's being covered up. That leaves Russian or American missiles, I said, as Steele first suggested. But there are some points that just won't fit the missile theory. You've left out one answer, said Purdy. What's that? Interplanetary. You're kidding, I said. I didn't say I believed it, said Purdy. I just say it's possible. DeBerry was watching me. I know how you feel. That's how it hit me when Ken first said it. I've heard it before, I said, but I never took it seriously. Maybe this will interest you, Purdy said. He gave me a note from Sam Bowl. I just talked with D, the note ran. D is a prominent aeronautical engineer, the designer of a world-famous plane. He believes the discs may be interplanetary and that the air force knows it or at least suspects it. I'm enclosing sketches showing how he thinks the discs operate. He's not the first one who told us that, said Purdy. We've heard the same thing from other engineers. Over a dozen airline pilots think they're coming from out in space. And there's a rocket expert at Wright Field who's warned Project Saucer that the things are interplanetary. That's why I'm not writing it off. Have you read the Project Saucer ideas on space travel? Duberry asked me. I told him my copy hadn't reached me. He read me some marked paragraphs in his copy of the preliminary report. There has been speculation that the aerial phenomena might actually be some form of penetration from another planet. The existence of intelligent life on Mars is not impossible, but is completely unproven. The possibility of intelligent life on the planet Venus is not considered completely unreasonable by astronomers. Scientists concede that living organisms might develop in chemical environments which are strange to us. In the next 50 years, we will almost certainly start exploring space. The chance of space travelers existing at planets attached to neighboring stars is very much greater than the chance of space-traveling Martians. The one can be viewed as almost a certainty. DeBerry handed me the report. Here I practically know it by heart. Take it with you. You can send it back later. I know the space travel idea sounds silly at first, said Purdy, but it's the only answer that explains all the sightings, especially those in the last century. He asked DeBerry to give me their file of historic reports. While John was getting it, Purdy went on, Be careful about this man, Steele. After what he said about moral responsibility, I'm sure he's planted. I thought back to Steele's warning. I told Purdy, if he had the space thing in mind, maybe he's right. It could set off a panic that would make that Orson Wells thing look like a picnic. Certainly it could, Purdy said. We'd have to handle it carefully, if it turned out to be the truth. But I think the Air Force is making a mistake, if that's what they're hiding. It could break the wrong way and be serious. John DeBerry came back with a file of old reports. It might interest you to know, he said, that the Air Force checked all these old sightings, too. The idea was still a difficult one for me to believe. Those space travel suggestions might be a trick, I said. The Air Force may be hinting at that to hide the guided missile secret. Yes, but later on they deny the space thing, said Purdy. It looks as if they're trying to put people on guard and then play it down so they won't get scared. As I put the historic reports file in my briefcase, Purdy handed me a letter from an investigator named Hilton, who had been working in the Southwest. I skimmed over his letter. Hilton had heard of some unusual night sightings in New Mexico. The story had been hushed up, but he had learned some details from a pilot at Albuquerque. One of these mysterious flying lights had been seen at Las Vegas on December 8th, 1948, just one month before Mantell was killed in Kentucky. It was too dark to make out the shape behind the light, but all witnesses had agreed on its performance. The thing had climbed at tremendous speed, its upward motion shown by a bright green light. Though the green glow was much brighter than a plane's running light, all plane schedules were carefully checked. I think they were trying to pin it on a jet fighter, the Albuquerque pilot told Hilton. But there weren't any jets near there. Anyway, the thing climbed too fast. It must have been making close to 900 miles an hour. The Air Force had also checked balloon release times, apparently just for the record, since no balloon could even approach the saucer's terrific ascent. Again, they drew a blank. From the way this was hushed up, Hilton commented, they seem to be worried about this group of sightings. I've heard two reports that the FBI is tied into the deal somehow, but that's as far as I can get. See if you can get any lead on that, Purdy told me. That FBI business puzzles me. Where would they come in? I said I would try to find out, but it was almost four months before we learned the answer. The FBI men had been witnesses. This was later admitted in an obscure cross-reference in the final Project Saucer report, but all official answers to the strange green light sightings had been carefully admitted. The cases concerned were 223, 224, 225, 226, 227, 230, and 231, which will be discussed later. When you go back to Washington, said Purdy, see what reaction you get to the interplanetary idea. I had a pretty good idea what the reaction would be, but I nodded. Okay, I'll go flag a spaceship and be on my way. Okay, gag it up, said Purdy, but don't sell it short, if by any chance it's true. It'll be the biggest story since the birth of Christ. And that's the end of Chapter 6. Seeing as how that was a little bit too short for a weekly episode, you know, 15 minutes or so, a little on the shy side, I'm going to go ahead and read Chapter 7 as well. Here we go. Chapter 7. It was dark when the airliner limousine reached LaGuardia Field. I had intended taking an earlier plane, but DeBerry persuaded me to stay over for dinner. We dropped into the Algonquin next door to True's office building. "'Halfway through dinner, I asked John what he thought of the space travel answer. "'Oh, it's possible,' he said cautiously. "'The time and space angles make it hard to take. "'But if we're planning to explore space within 50 years, "'there's no reason some other planet people couldn't do it. "'Of course, if they've been observing us for over a century, "'as those old sightings seem to indicate, "'they must be far ahead of us, at least in technical progress.' Later on, he said thoughtfully, "'Even though it's possible, I hate to think it's the answer. Just imagine the impact on the world. We'd have to reorient our whole lives, and things are complicated enough already. Standing at the gate, waiting for my plane to be called, I thought over that angle. Assuming that space travel was the solution, which I still couldn't believe, what would be the effect on the world? It was a hard thing to picture.' so much depended on the visitors from space. What would their purpose be? Would they be peaceful or hostile? Why had they been observing the Earth so intensively in the past few years? I could think of a hundred questions. What would the space people be like? Would they be similar to men and women on Earth, or some fearsome Buck roger creatures who would terrify the average American, including myself? It was obvious they would be far superior to us in many ways, but their civilization might be entirely different. Evolution might have developed their minds and possibly their bodies along lines we couldn't even grasp. Perhaps we couldn't even communicate with them. What would be the net effect of making contact with beings from a distant planet? Would earthlings be terrified, or if it seemed a peaceful exploration? would we be intrigued by the thought of a great adventure. It would depend entirely on the space visitors' motives, and how the world was prepared for such a revelation. The more I thought about it, the more fantastic the thing seemed. And yet, it hadn't been too long since airplane flight was considered an idiot's dream. The scene here at LaGuardia would have seemed pure fantasy in 1900, The huge constellations and DC-6s, the double-decked Stratocruisers sweeping in from all over the country, the big ships at Pan American taking off for points all over the globe. We'd come a long way in the 46 years since the Wright brothers' first flight. But space travel. The gate man checked my ticket and I went out to the Washington plane. It was a luxury ship a 52-passenger, 4 engine DC-6, scheduled to be in the capital one hour after takeoff. By morning, this plane, the Aztec, would be in Mexico City. The couple going up the gangway ahead of me were in their late 60s. Fifty years ago, what would they have said if someone had predicted this flight? The answer to that was easy. At that time, high school songbooks featured a well-known piece entitled "'Darius Green and his flying machine. "'Darius, it seems, was a simple-minded lad "'who actually thought he could fly. 50 years. "'That was the time the Air Force had estimated "'it would take us to start exploring space. "'Would Americans come to accept space travel "'as matter-of-factly as the people now boarding this plane? "'The youngsters would, probably. "'The older ones, as a rule, would be a little more cautious.' In the Oval Lounge at the rear of the plane, I took out the file of old sighting reports. Glancing through it, I saw the excerpts from 19th century astronomical and scientific journals and extracts from official gazettes. Most of the early sightings had been in Great Britain and on the continent, with a few reports scattered around the world. The American reports did not begin until the latter part of the century. The DC-6 rolled out and took off. For a few minutes, I watched the lights of Manhattan and greater New York twinkling below. The Empire State Building tower was still above us as the plane banked over the East River. We climbed quickly, and the familiar outline of Manhattan took shape like a map pinpointed with millions of lights. Any large city seen from the air at night has a certain magic. New York most of all. Looking down, I thought, what would a spaceman think, seeing this brilliantly lighted city, the towering skyscrapers? Would other planets have such cities, or would it be something new and puzzling to a visitor from space? Turning back to the old reports, I skipped through until I found the American sightings. One of the first was an incident at Bonham, Texas, in the summer of 1873, It was broad daylight when a strange, fast-moving object appeared in the sky, southwest of the town. For a moment, the people of Bonham stared at the thing, not believing their eyes. The only flying device then known was the drifting balloon. But this thing was tremendous, and speeding so fast its outlines were almost a blur. Terrified farmers dived under their wagons. Townspeople fled indoors. Only a few hardy souls remained in the streets. The mysterious object circled Bonham twice, then raced off to the east and vanished. Descriptions of the strange machine varied from round or oval to cigar-shaped. The details of the Bonham sighting were later confirmed for me by Frank Edwards, mutual network newscaster who investigated this case. Twenty-four hours after the Bonham incident, A device of the same description appeared at Fort Scott, Kansas. Panic-stricken soldiers fled the parade ground as the thing flashed overhead. In a few seconds, it disappeared, circling toward the north. Until now, I had supposed that the term saucer was original with Kenneth Arnold. Actually, the first to compare a flying object with a saucer was John Martin, a farmer who lived near Denison, Texas. The Denison Daily News of January 25th, 1878, gives the following account. From Mr. John Martin, a farmer who lives some six miles south of this city, we learn the following strange story. Tuesday morning while out hunting, his attention was directed to a dark object high up in the southern sky. The peculiar shape and velocity with which the object seemed to approach "'Riveted his attention, and he strained his eyes to discover its character. "'When first noticed, it appeared to be about the size of an orange, "'which continued to grow in size. "'After gazing at it for some time, "'Mr. Martin became blind from long-looking "'and left off viewing it for a time in order to rest his eyes. "'On resuming his view, the object was almost overhead "'and had increased considerably in size.' and appeared to be going through space at wonderful speed. When directly over him, it was about the size of a large saucer, and was evidently at great height. Mr. Martin thought it resembled, as well as he could judge, a balloon. It went as rapidly as it had come and was soon lost to sight in the heavenly skies. Mr. Martin is a gentleman of undoubted veracity, and this strange occurrence, if it was not a balloon, deserves the attention of our scientists. In the file, I saw a memo Berry had written. I would take the very early reports with caution. For instance, the one on August 9, 1762, which describes an odd spindle-shaped body traveling at high speed toward the sun. I recall that Charles Fort accepted this, along with other early sightings, as evidence of spaceships. But this particular thing might have been a meteor, Meteors as such were almost unknown then. The later reports are more convincing, and it is also easier to check the sources, especially those from 1870 on. From 1762 to 1870, the reports were meager. Some described mysterious lights in the sky. A few mentioned round objects seen in daylight. Even though they were not so fully documented as later ones, one point struck me. In those days, there was no telegraph, telephone, or radio to spread news rapidly and start a flood of rumors. A sighting in Scotland could not be the cause of a similar one two days later in the south of France. Beginning in 1870, there was a series of reports that went on to the turn of the century. In the London Times, September 26, 1870, there was a description of a queer object that was seen crossing the moon. It was reported as elliptical, with some kind of tail, and it took almost 30 seconds to complete its passage of the moon. Then in 1871, a large round body was sighted above Marcelles, France. This was on August 1st. It moved slowly across the sky, apparently at great height, and was visible about 15 minutes. On March 22, 1880, Several brilliantly luminous objects were reported seen at Catenau, Germany. Cited just before sunrise, they were described as rising from the horizon and moving from east to west. The account was published in the British Nature magazine, volume 22, page 64. The next report in the file mentioned briefly a strange round object seen in the skies over Bermuda. The source for this account was the Bermuda Royal Gazette, This was in 1885. That same year, an astronomer and other witnesses reported a gigantic aerial object at Adrianople, Turkey. On November 1st, the weird apparition was seen moving across the sky. Observers described it as round and four to five times the size of the moon. This estimate is similar to the Denison, Texas comparison with an orange. The object would actually be huge to be seen at any great height. But unless the true height were known, any estimate of size would be guesswork. On March 19, 1887, two strange objects fell into the sea near a Dutch barkentine. As described by the skipper, Captain C.D. Sweet, one of the objects was dark, the other brightly luminous. The glowing object fell with a loud roaring sound. The shipmaster was positive it was not a meteor. In New Zealand a year later, an oval-shaped disc was reported speeding high overhead. This was on May 4, 1888. About two years after this, several large aerial bodies were sighted hovering over the Dutch East Indies. Most accounts described them as roughly triangular, about 100 feet on the base and 200 feet on the sides. But some observers thought they might be longer and narrower, with a rounded base. This would make them agree with more recent stories of cone shaped objects with rounded tops seen in American skies. On August 26, 1894, a British admiral reported sighting a large disk with a projection like a trail, and a year after this, both England and Scotland buzzed with stories of triangular-shaped objects like those seen in the Dutch East Indies. Although many officials scoffed at the stories, more than one astronomer stuck to his belief that the mysterious things might be coming from outer space. Since planes and dirigibles were then unknown, there was no one on Earth who could have been responsible for them. In 1897... Sightings in the United States began to be more frequent. One of the strangest reports describes an incident that began on April 9th. Flying at a great height, a huge cigar-shaped device was seen in the Midwest. Short wings projected from the sides of the object, according to reports of astronomers who watched it through telescopes. For almost a week, the aerial visitor was sighted around the Midwest, as far south as St. Louis, and as far west as Colorado, several times red, green, and white lights were seen to flash in the sky. Some witnesses thought the crew of this strange craft might be trying to signal the earth. On April 16th, the thing, whatever it was, disappeared from the Midwest. But on April 19th, the same object, or else a similar one, appeared over West Virginia. Early that morning, the town of Sisterville was awakened by blasts of the sawmill whistle. Those who went outside their homes saw a strange sight. From a torpedo-shaped object overhead, dazzling searchlights were pointing downward, sweeping the countryside. The thing appeared to be about 200 feet long, some 30 feet in diameter, with stubby wings and red and green lights along the sides. For almost ten minutes, the aerial visitors circled the town. Then it swung eastward and vanished. The next report was published in the U.S. Weather Bureau's Monthly Weather Review. On page 115 in the March 1904 issue, there is an account of an odd sighting at sea. On February 24, 1904, a mysterious light had been seen above the Atlantic by crew members of the USS Supply. It was moving swiftly and evidently at high altitude. The report was attested by Lt. Frank H. Schofield, USN. On July 2, 1907, a mysterious explosion occurred in the heavens near Burlington, Vermont. Some witnesses described a strange torpedo-shaped device circling above. Shortly after it was seen, a round, luminous object flashed down from the sky, then exploded. Weather Review, 1907, page 310. Another cigar-shaped craft was reported at a low altitude over Bridgewater, Massachusetts, in 1905. Like the one at Sisterville, it carried searchlights, which swept back and forth across the countryside. After a few moments, the visitor rose in a steep climb and the searchlights blinked out. There was no report for 1909 in America, though an odd aerial object was sighted near the Galapagos Islands. But in 1910, one January morning, a large silvery cigar-shaped device startled Chattanooga. After about five minutes, the thing sped away, appearing over Huntsville, Alabama shortly afterward. It made a second appearance over Chattanooga the next day, then headed east and was never seen again. In Popular Astronomy, January 27, 1012, a Dr. F.B. Harris described an intensely black object that he saw crossing the moon. As nearly as he could tell, it was gigantic in size, though again there was no way to be sure of its distance from him or the moon. With careful understatement, Dr. Harris said, I think a very interesting and curious phenomenon happened that night. A strange shadow was noticed on the clouds at Fort Worth, Texas on April 8, 1913. It appeared to be caused by some large body hovering motionless above the clouds. As the cloud layer moved, the shadow remained in the same position. Then it changed size, diminishing and quickly disappeared as if it had risen vertically. A report on this was given in the Weather Bureau Review of that year, number 4-599. By 1919, dirigibles were of course well known to most of the world. When a dirgible-shaped object appeared over Huntington, West Virginia in July of that year, there was no great alarm. It was believed to be an American blimp, though the darkness it was 11 at night, prevented observers from being sure. But a later checkup proved it was not an American ship, nor was it from any country possessing such craft. For some time after this, there were few authentic reports. Then in 1934, Nicholas Roach, head of the American Roach Expedition into Tibet, had a remarkable experience that bears on the saucer riddle, On pages 361 and 362 of his book, Altai Himalaya, Rorch describes the incident. The expedition party was in the wilds of Tibet one morning when a porter noticed the peculiar actions of a buzzard overhead. He called Rorch's attention to it. Then they all saw something high in the sky, moving at great speed from north to south. Watching it through binoculars, Rorch saw it was oval-shaped, obviously of huge size, and reflecting the sun's rays like brightly polished metal. While he trailed it with his glasses, the object suddenly changed direction, from south to southwest. It was gone in a few moments. This was the last sighting listed before World War II. When I had finished, I stared out the plane window, curiously disturbed. Like most people, I had grown up believing the Earth was the center of everything—life, intelligence, and religion. Now, for the first time in my life, that belief was shaken. It was a curious thing. I could accept the idea that we would eventually explore space, land on the moon, and go on to distant planets. I had read of the plans, and I knew our engineers and scientists would somehow find a way— it did not disturb my belief in our superiority. But faced with this evidence of a superior race in the universe, my mind rebelled. For years, I had been accustomed to thinking in comic strip terms of any possible spacemen. Buck Rogers stuff, with weird-looking spaceships and green-faced Martians. But now, if these sightings were true, the shoe was on the other foot we would be faced with a race of beings at least 200 years ahead of our civilization, perhaps thousands. In their eyes we might look like primitives. My conjectures before the takeoff had just been idle thinking. I had not really believed this could be the answer. But now the question came back sharply. How would we react to a sudden appearance of spaceships bringing that higher race to the earth, if we were fully prepared Educated to this tremendous adventure, it might come off without trouble. Unprepared, we would be thrown into panic. The lights of Philadelphia showed up ahead, and a thought struck me. What would Philadelphians of 1776 have thought to see this DC-6 flying across their city at 300 miles an hour? What would the sentries at Valley Forge have done, A year later, if this lighted airliner had streaked over their heads. Madness. Stampede. Those were the plain answers. But there was a difference now. We had had modern miracles. Radio, television, supersonic planes, and the promise of still more miracles. We could be educated, or at least partly prepared, to accept space visitors. In 50 years, we had learned to fly. In 50 years more we would be exploring space. Why should we believe such creative intelligence was limited to the Earth? It would be incredible if the Earth, out of all the millions of planets, proved the only inhabited spot in the whole universe. But instinctively, I still fought against believing that the flying saucers were spaceships. Eventually, we would make contact with races on other planets. They undoubtedly would someday visit the Earth— But if it could be put off, a problem for later generations to handle. If the disks proved American guided missiles, it would be an easier answer. Looking through the Project Saucer report DeBerry had loaned me, I read the space travel items, hoping to find some hint that this was a smokescreen. On page 18 in a discussion on Mars, I found this comment. Reports of strange objects seen in the skies have been handed down through the generations. However, scientists believe that if Martians were now visiting the Earth without establishing contact, it could be assumed that they have just recently succeeded in space travel, and that their civilization would be practically abreast of ours. This is because they find it hard to believe that any technically established race would come here, flaunt its ability in mysterious ways over the years, but each time simply go away without ever establishing contact. There could be several answers to that. The Martians might not be able to live in our atmosphere, except in their sealed spaceships. They, or some other planet race, could have observed us periodically to check on our slow progress. Until we began to approach their level of civilization, or in some way cause them concern, they would probably see no reason for trying to make contact. But somehow I found a vague comfort in the argument, full of holes though it was. Searching further I found other space travel comments. On one page, the Air Force admitted it was almost a certainty that space travelers would be operating from planets outside the solar system— But on the follow-up page, I discovered this sentence. Thus, although visits from outer space are believed to be possible, they are thought to be highly improbable. What was the answer? Was this just a wondering discussion of possibilities, badly put together? Or was it a hint of the truth? It could be the first step in preparing America for a revelation. It could also be a carefully thought-out trick. This whole report might be designed to conceal a secret weapon. If the Air Force or the Navy did have a secret missile, what better way to distract attention? The old sighting reports could have been seized on as a buildup for space travel hints. Then suddenly it hit me. Even if it were a smokescreen, what of those old reports? They still remained to be answered. There was only one possible explanation unless you discarded the sightings as lies. That meant discrediting many reliable witnesses—naval officers, merchant shipmasters, explorers, astronomers, ministers, and responsible public officials. Besides all these, there had been thousands of other witnesses, where large groups had seen the objects. The answer seemed inevitable, but I held it off. I didn't want to believe it, with all the changes it might bring, the unpredictable effect upon our civilization." If I kept on checking, I might find evidence that would bring a different explanation for the present saucers. DeBerry had put another group of reports in the envelope. This series covered the World War II phase and on up to the outbreak of the saucer scare in the United States. Some of it, about the Foo Fighters, I already knew. This was tied in with the Mystery Rockets report over Sweden. The first Swedish sightings had occurred during the early part of the war. Most of the so-called ghost rockets were seen at night, moving at tremendous speed. Since they came from the direction of Germany, most Swedes believed that guided rockets were the answer. During the summer of 1946, after the Russians had taken over Peenemünde, the Nazi missile base, ghost rockets again were reported flying over Sweden. Some were said to double back and fly into Soviet areas. Practically all were seen at night and therefore none had been described as a flying disc. Instead, they were said to be colored lights, red, green, blue, and orange, often blurred from their high speed. But there was a puzzling complication. Mystery lights and sometimes flying discs were simultaneously reported over Greece, Portugal, Turkey, Spain, and even French Morocco. Either there were two answers, or some nation had developed missiles, with an incredibly long range. By January 1947, ghost rocket sightings in Europe had diminished to less than one a month. Oddly enough, the first DISC report admitted by Project Saucer was in this same month. The first 47 case detailed by Project Saucer occurred at Richmond, Virginia. It was about the middle of April, A Richmond weather observer had released a balloon and was tracking it with a theodolite when a strange object crossed his field of vision. He swung the theodolite and managed to track the thing, despite its high speed. The actual speed and altitude, the later determined by a comparison of the balloon's height at various times, have never been released, nor has the Air Force released this observer's report on the object's size which Project Saucer admitted was more accurate than most witnesses' estimates. About the 17th of May 1947, a huge oval-shaped saucer ten times longer than its diameter was sighted by Byron Savage, an Oklahoma City pilot. Two days later, another fast-flying saucer was reported at Manitou Springs, Colorado. In the short time it was observed, it was seen to change direction twice, maneuvering at an unbelievable speed. Then, on June 24th, came Kenneth Arnold's famous report, which set off the saucer scare. The rest of the story I now knew almost by heart. When the DC-6 landed at Washington, I had made one decision. Since it was impossible to check up on most of the old sightings, I would concentrate on certain recent reports, cases in which the objects had been described as spaceships. As I waited for a taxi, I looked up at the sky. It was a clear summer night without a single cloud. Beyond the low hill to the west, I could see the stars. I can still remember thinking, if it's true, then the stars will never again seem the same. And that's the end of Chapter 7. Stay tuned next time for Chapter 8. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by leaving a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange.